Also, while I'm thinking of it, uh, just a note to Mitch from the pulpit, I just thought of it. Christmas tracks, would you follow up and see what we have? We need to get some order of those tomorrow. And my daughter, Rachel, are you in here? Rachel, let's also work on the, uh, for the cantata, the invitations for the cantata, get those orders so we can get those in by Thanksgiving as well. And now, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. First Thessalonians chapter 5, two verses right here, 21 and 22. Prove all things, hold fast that which is good, abstain from all appearance of evil. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I love you. Lord, I thank you for your word. I ask your blessing and your help in the message tonight. Lord, help me to stay true to your word, to preach truth. Lord, I pray for your mercy and your grace. Lord, I pray that your word would be effective. Lord, that it would have free course that it would draw us closer to you, that you would meet the needs that are here. Lord, help us to be grounded and strong and faithful to your word and faithful to you. Lord, so please bless tonight. Lord, if there is anyone here that truly has never been converted, Lord, I certainly pray for their conversion this evening. They repent and place their faith in Christ. Lord, I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We have been looking at this series of these imperatives coming to the conclusion of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I think we've all agreed. We've seen how important they are in our Christian life, how much we need them, how practical they are, even though it starts off with those three ones that appear to be just not even possible to follow. But we went through them, from rejoicing evermore, praying without ceasing, and everything give thanks. Um, and, and we dove into each one of those. We took a full sermon for each one of those. And then even the fallen one, quench not the spirit. How we looked at that, about dealt much with our, our passion, our fire, for the Lord not to let that go out, what the Holy Spirit produces in us. And then two weeks ago we looked at um, verse number 20, which is despise not prophesying, uh, the preaching of the Word of God, the importance of how much we need that. Um, And now as he comes to the conclusion of this in verse 20 and 21, these really are, uh, these last three deal with the exact same truth. And it also covers, boy, this is an important one tonight. I believe it does cover one of the most, I don't know about the biggest problem, but without a doubt, one of the biggest problems that we are seeing today in churches. And that is a lack of discernment. That is a lack of spiritual discernment, something that we desperately need. And that is what these verses right right here deal with. We see today is... Uh, churches using really pathetic reasoning to justify what's taking place, a lack of understanding, a shallowness that is there, confusion that has come in, and it's causing a great deal of damage within churches. Uh, as a church, we need to have discernment. We need to have it as a church. We need to have it as individually, especially if you're in any position as a leadership in your family. Just think of the importance it is as us as, as parents to be able to raise children that can discern. In a world that is so confusing as to what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil, your children need to have the ability to discern. That needs to be in place. Um, We can see how dangerous this issue is when we see it in the Scriptures. Let's take a look at Matthew chapter 16. We're well aware that by the time of Christ, that Judaism itself had taken a really wrong turn 
and become this pseudo-Judaism. It was, it was, it was nowhere, nowhere really near truth. It had become something it should have never have become. And Christ spent much, uh, many of his sermons in reproving this pseudo-Judaism that had come about. In Matthew 16, he gives one of the reasons uh, of how this came to pass. Look at verse 1. The Pharisees, also with the Sadducees, both the leadership group that made up Judaism, came. And tempting, desired him that he would show them a sign from heaven. I love his answer. He answered and said unto them, When in this evening you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. In the morning it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and lowering. Oh, ye hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. He's coming at him strong. He's talking about one of the biggest problems they have right now. They're, they want a sign from him. He sees the problems with Judaism. He's telling us, you can discern the weather better, better than you can the Word of God. You lack the discernment where it's truly needed. Boy, is that true in our day to day. One of the one of the more famous Greek stories, and it's debated how true it is and, and, and to what degree it really really doesn't that doesn't matter too much, and that is dealing with the city of Troy. The Greeks had tried to take the city for years. I believe it was a decade, like ten years. They had tried to take the city. It was without success. And finally, they came up with a, uh, with a plan by the, uh, a man uh, of the name of Ulysses who had developed this large, uh, huge horse, uh, a wooden horse. They left it outside the city walls, and it appeared as if the Greeks had left, that their armies had departed. That wasn't true, but that's what it looked like. And so outside the walls of the city they've been trying to capture, they left this giant, this giant horse that was there, and it looked as if it was a gift given to the Trojans. Well, when it looked as if they had sailed off, they brought the horse inside the walls. Now, the priest there, once it was coming in, the priest there gave warning. He had said, in, in a quote from him, I fear the Greeks even when they bring gifts. So he had asked them, he thought they should get it out, but they did not. That night, though, the Greek soldiers that were inside this, just a few of them, um, they got out of the horse when it was nighttime. They opened the city gates from within, and they let in the Greek army, which then they conquered the city that night. They, they, they basically slaughtered the entire city. They burned it to the ground when that took place. And so we have the saying today, the, the Trojan horse. It is the symbol of ultimate deception. Something that appeared to be a gift, but certainly was not. They lacked discernment. They made a really bad choice. We have seen Trojan horses in churches since the beginning, for the last 2,000 years. Let me give some examples. And these things, by the way, they, they have wreaked havoc. And as I go through just a couple of the examples, you can see the damage that they have caused, something that was brought inside churches that they thought was all right, but they lacked discernment. When the Roman Catholic Church was starting to form, a Trojan horse would be key to deluding and destroying those churches. <clears throat> I want to quote from one source about what took place. Again, the Roman Catholic Church, because it started there in Rome. I don't know if you're familiar with all that came about. It became a state religion. There's a, a lot of circumstances coming together that would lead to the formation of what would be called the Roman Catholic Church. So this deals with that, what I'm getting ready to read. 
The Romans were polytheistic. In other words, they had many gods, many gods. They had a god for hunting, they had a god for buying, they had a god for selling, they had a god to protect them on a journey. They had, you just name it, they had a god for it. Once Christianity was affirmed as the religion of the Roman Empire, that would be Constantine, it was necessary to dispense with all this in some way. But rather than take a strong stand against idolatry and superstition, the church of Rome simply assigned those responsibilities that once belonged to Roman deities to dead saints. It was an appeasement move. For example, instead of the God to protect you on your journeys, that became St. Christopher. That you would actually pray to the dead saint for your journeys. They were just matching with the Roman deities that were coming in. That's all they were doing. And so you had the merging now of Rogan pagan, idolatry, superstition with Christianity, with the church that started out right and that that those Trojan horses came in and they destroyed it. When that took place, obviously in violation of Scripture altogether, people began to pray not to the Roman gods but to the dead saints. That still takes place today. Oh, those of you like me that came out of the Roman Catholic Church, you do pray to the dead saints. You put Christopher on your car, matter of fact. You got a little idol you can put right on your car right there so he reminds you to pray to him. Outrageous. It was a Trojan horse that came in. It infiltrated and simply destroyed those that were involved in it as far as the Christian faith. 18th century. Let's jump ahead a little bit. Let's jump ahead. Maybe just a little bit prior to this, when rationalism was becoming a thing in Europe. As you know, Europe is known for its dead churches for the most part. Cold, dead, liberal theology. This is how it happened. A Trojan horse came in. It was during the time of the Enlightenment. It was during the time, and this was two parts of Europe, by the way. You had the Reformation one port, and, 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 and this is taking place in another part of Europe. It was basically almost geographical between north and south. And, and, but the rising humanism was taking place. And so, and so man was becoming prideful and biographies and everything. Man was lifting up himself. And, and it wasn't necessarily that atheism came to place yet in it. But it did give rise to another ism that would greatly affect the churches that they allowed in. Because they saw, it was almost a prideful thing, the intellectualism that went with rationalism. It started to infiltrate the churches. They started to allow it in because of the intelligence of man. Deism formed. The belief that, yes, there is a God, but with our intelligence, he left it to ourselves. He made us who we are with this intelligence, and so God created us, but now it's up to us. The ramifications would be enormous. It would lead into what we call today liberal theology. When, so when that reasoning came into the churches, that affected how they approached the Word of God. So now all of a sudden in these churches, anything they could not deduced themselves as logical, they denied. The resurrection, the virgin birth, any miracle in the Bible was denied. Because it went against their reasoning, and after all, look how intelligent we are. That was an example of a Trojan horse that came in. 
today we have different Trojan horses that are coming in. Let me give you one that's hitting our Baptist churches. Pragmatism. Coming in looking like a gift. Looking like this is going to help you. If you will change your permission to the position in the church that you make decisions based on pragmatism instead of principle. Oh, it'll fill your pews. Oh, and it will. It will. It's a Trojan horse. Mysticism. People are always looking for an experience, aren't they? They do. They want an experience. They want a dream. They want an experience. The fact that the Bible says that Satan appears as an angel of light, so does his ministers. It's basically telling us he uses Trojan horses. He uses something you think is a gift for you to destroy you. It's there so that when the lights go out, the army comes in. We have to be able to spiritually discern. We have to be able to prove all things, hold fast that which is good, and abstain from that which is evil. So let's look at this here this evening. Let's look at what does it mean to discern. Let's dive into that, improving all things. Then I want us to look at how did all this happen? How do we get to this place with such an incredible lack of spiritual discernment? And then finishing up with how do we become effective? How do we become an effective person at spiritually discerning matters? First off, let's dive into this. What does it mean to discern? In our text, it starts off with prove all things. The word prove there is interesting. It, it usually applies to metals. Uh, re- referring to the art, if you will, the skilled technician at proving metals by fire. It would be intense. It would bring out the purity. It meant The word means to analyze, test, prove. Similar to what the Bereans did in Acts chapter 17. And that they searched the scriptures daily to see whether those things were so. We have to be able, and we're instructed here in 1 Thessalonians, to prove all things. Don't just say, well, I trust so and so. You prove all things. Do you know how often in our circles we have got off track just because of a book that some man wrote that you happen to trust? And you didn't question it based on authorship. And you ran off on some tangent because you did not prove all things with Scripture. And you got off base because you simply trusted the author. I got news for you. If if, if I write a book, you better prove it. It's not inspired by God, not even close. Prove it. Man, I, I remember going back into the 90s. There was this rise in this children and how to raise your children's book and I remember going through the thing and thinking, this thing is just plain dangerous is all it is. But the lack of spiritual discernment, honestly, was alarming. I see different books on preaching, on how to preach. Different books from dating, according, and just like, what? We need spiritual discernment. You just don't base it upon the name on the book. You don't. You have to discern. If the devil appears as an angel of light, believe it. Be able to spiritually discern. We have to prove all things. Then once you go through that process, here's what comes next. You prove all things, and then you have to hold fast to that which is good. Once you prove it, and you know, this is truth. 
You hold fast to it. You let it change you. You just don't forget it. You use it. You hold fast that which is good. You hold fast. That means grab hold of it. Listen, teenager, listen to me. When, when you're hearing truth and you know it is, don't dismiss it. You're in a place where you're going to hear truth. So what the devil's going to do is he's going to come at another angle. He just wants you to forget about it. Just dismiss it. Hold fast. That's what you do. The word for good there. I like the word for good there that's used. To hold fast that which is good. It means what is in itself good. Genuine. True. In other words, not just looking good, not artificial, not superficial, but what is inherently genuine, true, noble, that hold fast to. When you find it, embrace it. Hold on to it. So as you discern and as you prove, you see something that is good, embrace it. But then as you prove all things, now get this. You hold fast that which is good, but then we come to verse 22. This is all part of the same truth. You abstain, though. You stay away from all appearance of evil. Now, we we misinterpret this verse often. We think it has the idea of if anything just happens to look like it's evil, if it's not evil, you stay away. That's that's a very good principle. It is. There's nothing wrong with, with... with, I think you should follow that. But that is not what this verse is teaching. The word appearance here is the key. It never, ever, in any way, shape, or form, means the word semblance. It's not what it's talking about. Let me give you other ways it's translated in the New Testament. One primary way is the word sight. The word sight. It's, it, this is, you've got to keep this in context of what was just said. Prove all things. That which is good, hold on to. But that which you find to be evil, get away from. Stay away from it. Get it out. It's not saying just simply if something appears to be good, like we think of the word semblance, this doesn't mean that in any way, shape, or form. When evil appears, when you see it, you have the knowledge of it, get away. Avoid it. And again, the idea is connected to the previous verse. You prove all things, you hold fast to that which is good, and you abstain from, the word means stay away, from all appearance of evil. When evil appears, when you have the knowledge of it, it's what it's dealing with. And again, there's certainly nothing wrong with avoiding something that looks as evil, staying away from it. That's a very good principle, but that is not what that verse is teaching us. As, as those who are in the pastor, as me as a pastor, it's one of my biggest responsibilities as a pastor is spiritual discernment. It's all of ours, but, but much, much more so on me. No man should be in the office of a pastor without spiritual discernment. It, it's similar to uh, uh, um, what a medical doctor does, who basically also has to live by discernment. He has to make it on, He has to... Uh, have a person come before him that's having these symptoms, has to make a correct diagnosis and figure out how to treat it. There's a lot of discernment that is necessary in there. It's all about that understanding, reading the symptoms, what is wrong, uh, what's the right thing to do, uh, how do I make this wrong right? They're to diagnose and find a cure. 
that's what happens here spiritually. In our own lives and truth in the pastorate, it is being able to recognize the problem when it's there. And then knowing how to deal with it. I mean, there's been different times where it's been obvious we've had to deal with. I, I, I can think of, uh, of the one time we had me going through First John, and we had a bunch of our men at the men's meeting and all heard a lesson that I thought was spiritually dangerous and that we don't have to ask forgiveness for sins. And I thought, oh, boy, i got to deal with this. And it did. It just happened to fit where I was because we were happened to be in First John 1, going through First John at the time, but we happened to be in verse 9. Um, and so we had to deal with it from the position of we are justified. All of our sins are forgiven before God, period. We are justified forever. In that sense, I need no forgiveness. But we forget we're still on this earth right now, and I have a relationship with God that is important that I come before him and say, Lord, I am sorry. <clears throat> and what I am to do spiritually is to assess truth from error. Help us to be able to apply truth in the right way. One pastor defines spiritual discernment as this. Discernment is a skill in separating divine truth from error and half-truth. It is the skill in separating divine truth from error. By the way, look at, look at Titus 1.9. This is required. Titus chapter 1. <clears throat> I was just had a call a, a week ago or so. And, and uh, from somebody who was dealing, uh, dealing with the pastor, I do not know that pastor, and, and, and they had a serious issue come up and, and say, well, I don't see this as one of the qualifications. He was just looking one of the qualifications. I said, no, I said, I said you're missing this. I said, you need to go to Titus chapter 1. I said, there is a qualification here that is essential for what you're dealing with. Verse 9 says this. Holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, so that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. For there are many ruler and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision. And he goes on from there, his mouth must be stopped, etc. But there's a requirement for the pastor to be able to discern and to be able to, with Scripture, say, this is the way to go. Here it is. Now, it's true of all of us, but I do believe it's a major responsibility of those who hold the office of a pastor. Now, why has, why has all this happened to us today? Why such incredible lack of spiritual discernment? Because we do see it. I mean, I, I mean, I, I mean from, you, you can just almost name the subject today. There's just such a lack of discernment between what's right and wrong, uh, uh, truth and error. It's, it's just incredible. And this certainly isn't exhaustive by any means. So, <coughs> excuse me, I just want to bring up a couple of things here as to what has led to it today. And I hope these make sense. I had trouble really trying to put the wording together for some of these, but I think I can explain it to where, to where it'll be understanding. But we need to understand the root cause of it so we can deal with it. Number one, I, I put this down. We're more worried about appearance and image today than doctrinal purity. We're more worried about our appearance and image as a church or as pastor, as a Christian, than we actually are about doctrinal purity today. Let me explain that. The, the truth is, and I'm included in this, we all like to be liked. We do. The, the, it's, it's, 
That, that's in our nature. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, something's wrong with a person if they just want to be hated. But you cannot allow that to control what you do. When that is controlling you, it will lead to shallowness and carnality in your life. We all know there has been a sustained attack on biblical doctrine. I mean, it's been fierce the last 20 years. I mean, I mean, right now, just preaching the idea of the clear biblical truth of a woman should, of a wife should submit to her husband. Woo, that doesn't go over well nowadays, does it? The reality of hell, the truth of repentance. That homosexuality is sin. Doesn't go over well. <clears throat> Doctrine has been under attack. The idea that Christ is the only way. Oh, how narrow-minded can you be? You can think of all the preachers right now that are basically just left that. Well, you know, just listen to one this week. Well, my God is big enough to be all-inclusive. Isn't that such a spiritually convenient statement? He'll be saying that from hell for a very long time. But there's been a sustained attack on doctrine. People who hold fast to doctrine are viewed as unwilling to compromise, mean, harsh, unloving. Well, who wants to be viewed that way? So compromise comes in. That begins to destroy immediately spiritual discernment because there's a doctrinal breakdown. In our selfish culture, even within our churches included in this and pastors, so worried about how they appear and what others think of them, they compromise there. When it was cultural to take a strong stand, let's go back to 1975. They all would have taken a strong stand. It was convenient. It's no longer convenient. So many churches, for the sake of unity, relationships, have moved away from convictions and doctrine. The truth is, doctrine does divide. They're right. But it should divide. It should divide. Truth from error, good from evil, wrong from right. It's what it does. I mean, it amazes me, that's the argument. But doctrine divides, love unites. Love, true love divides just as much as doctrine does, by the way. This, in turn, has affected the pulpit, which will hurt a church spiritually, especially in regards to discernment. The emphasis in many churches has gone from preaching doctrine, from biblical preaching, giving people strong knowledge of truth, because that's now lacking, discernment takes a nosedive. And now, much of the preaching is more, more about inducing feelings, inducing emotions, focusing uh, on all the needs of, of the people. Don't worry, the Bible meets the needs. I'm not down on that. Just understand, I'm, I, like, like we were talking about, preachers today are more comics, they're more uh, um, storytellers, they're more life coaches, than they actually are simply proclaimers of God's word. And discernment takes a nosedive when that happens. It does, the devil attack it in many ways. He can come in and just, and, and just, it doesn't have to go that route with it. It can just be shallowness in the pulpit and preaching on the same thing every week. Or the hobby horse every other week. It begins to affect 
spiritual discernment. Because truth is not being disseminated. And we can see this taking shape in many ways. We hear this uh, in relation to image, and I want to tie this as another angle of the same point I'm trying to make, but it's a completely different angle, but under the same point. We hear this a lot. If we're going to win the world, we've got to get the world to like us. In the name of evangelism, we want to be more seeker-friendly. Many times what they mean is we don't want to be too doctrinal. The belief is in order to evangelize, which they see as a priority, and evangelism is a priority. But there's a Trojan horse that's coming. We have to be this worldly, friendly place. So the new trend is for churches to focus on love and care, being nice, making everybody comfortable, making everybody happy, entertain the unbelievers, make sure they're never offended, make sure they are very, very comfortable in your church. Listen, I don't want anybody uncomfortable in my church. But the truth is, if you're lost and unsaved, the Word of God is either going to change you, or you're going to say, I want out of here. One or the other. That's exactly how it should be. Listen to me. We gather as a church to be edified, for believers to grow in faith. We gather as a church to be edified, to grow, to worship God. We scatter to evangelize. Another reason this is taking place, culturally speaking, has affected the church. We have strongly moved towards relativism. In other words, we no longer want to see things as black and white. Gray. Gray. Well, when you're looking at it as gray, you're going to lack spiritual discernment. But when things are black and white, it's a whole lot easier. Nowadays, it's more, it's what you believe is all that matters to you. That's your truth. Good for you. Religion then becomes subjective. And experience gets lifted up above truth. Spiritual discernment nosedives. People can't determine what's right and what's wrong. So that is a direct attack on absolutes. It is. Listen, if you don't believe in absolutes, there's no need for discernment. Because you get to choose your own truth. The truth is, biblical preaching is not relative. It's not subjective. It is absolute. It is sharply black and white. It It is very antithetical to error. And it should be. Another reason, let me move through these quickly, there is great spiritual immaturity today. There seems to be a, a, a shallow knowledge of God's word that will lead to spiritual discernment. There's not been a lot of biblical preaching. I am not, I'm not being mean when I bring this up. I'm not. I'm not trying to do any comparisons whatsoever. But it's just a, a practical lesson that I, that I think our, our church needs to hear. I'm going to use it. Could you imagine that all you're getting fed is what you heard on Sunday night? Could you imagine that? Do you think you'd have a capa- uh, an ability of spiritual discernment? I'm not being mean. Please, please don't come being mean. I'm not. But my goodness. There's a responsibility. 
So let me move on to the last point. How, how do we develop in ourselves? How do we become spiritually discerning? How can we get effective at it? Because it certainly is needed. A few steps here. A few steps and, and then we'll go home. Number one, I think, I think all these are very important. But it, it does start here. And that's your true desire for it. A genuine desire to have that in place. Listen, if your only desire in life is to be happy, healthy, wealthy, comfortable, you're not going to be a discerning person. You have to see the need for this. You have to have the desire for it. Because it's going to require some work, some understanding, some learning, some study. Be willing to be like the Bereans. Desire to know truth, to esteem it more than your necessary food. Be willing to study. Then you'll begin the process of these other steps to go after it. Listen, don't always depend upon somebody else for your spiritual growth. Listen, we are, the Lord does give to the church pastors and teachers, but. You have to grow up. There's a time as I raise my children, you know what? I, I, I stop giving them baby food. They, they learn to feed themselves. Number two, prayer. Go to God. He is the all-knowing one. He is the one who knows perfectly well what is right and what is wrong. Begin to have that prayer life. And by what, what I think is important here about prayer life, it brings in an attribute for this that I think is important. That's humility. Pride prevents true, genuine, spiritual discernment. Because pride brings in, you know. I mean, you got this. You're spiritually discerning enough, I got this. I, I know it, I got it. It's pride. Humility. Go to God. Let me give you an example. Let's look at 1 Kings chapter 3. 1 Kings chapter 3. The example we have are of a man who understood the great need for spiritual discernment. Verse 9, 1 Kings chapter 3. Give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people that I may discern between good and bad. For who is able to judge this? Thy so great a people. And get this, because of what he wanted and the speech pleased the Lord that Solomon asked this thing. And God said unto him, because thou hast asked this thing. Now get this, and has not asked for thyself long life, neither has thou asked riches for thyself, nor asked for the life of thine enemies, but has asked for thyself an understanding to discern judgment. And he says, behold, you've got it. It's yours. Now think of this. To get to the place of genuine prayer before God of this, it's putting self out of the picture. The things he listed were what the Lord usually got from people. I want to be rich. 
kill my enemy. My, my what? Well, I can't say. I can't repeat the word I just said. Whatever it was, my enemies. My enemies. <laughs> Give me good speech. But he says you've not asked of yourself. He asked for discernment. Lord, I know for me to be effective, I need discernment. And you do. You need it in your home. We need it as a church. You need it in your life. You need it when you're at work. We need spiritual discernment in our life. So pray. James 1, I'm not going to turn it for time today, but James 1 deals with that. If any of you lack wisdom... And the context, of course, was trials and suffering, but it's still I, I could tie that into discernment. Knowing what to do. <clears throat> Number three, to help you. Uh, get to a place of spiritual discernment. One, you've got to desire it. You go to God. You ask God, please give me wisdom. Please give me understanding. Please give me discernment. Allow it to be genuine from a place of humility. Number three, follow the mature. The spiritually mature. Mature people tend to have discernment. That's what Hebrews 5, Ephesians 4, don't be children tossed to and from about with every wind of doctrine. Look for those that have genuine spiritual maturity. It's not that they've been saved 30 years. That's what those texts are dealing with. You've been saved 30 years, but you're still a baby. Look for those that you can sense, wait, there's some spiritual discernment here. Don't go to the carnal Christian for your discernment. That's just you wanting to get the answer you want to get. Fourthly, in John chapter 16, we won't turn there. I think we're all familiar with the verse in verse 13. The Holy Spirit is our teacher. So the Spirit-filled life is a key. You have God's indwelling Holy Spirit within you. Listen, understand this. God wants you to have spiritual discernment more than you want it. He's not trying to withhold it. He's not. He's not trying to make it difficult. And God's Holy Spirit is right there. There's things that hold us up, our own carnality, because really, sometimes we really know the answer, but we look to support what we want to believe. It's, uh, there's a difference between genuinely looking for truth and just supporting what you want to believe. When you come before God, just God, just give me discernment to be able to follow you. You're all that matters. Lord, what I'm wrong in, show me. What I'm right in, you know, that which is good, help me to hold fast. That which makes known itself to me as evil, help me to abstain from. And this one ties it all together. It's the key. This is the key. Study to show thyself approved unto God. The Word of God. I'm, I'm, listen, I'm, these other ones are not going to help you if this one isn't in place. But you put this in place with the others, now you give the Holy Spirit something to use in your mind. Now you give Him something to bring right to your attention. Ah, I can see it. I remember, what was it, a couple of weeks ago I was preaching on something. It was a Wednesday night too. I remember, I, I won't call their name out, but it was, I, it, it just made me smile when I was done. I, I, the service had finished. I, I was in my office, standing at my desk, wasn't seated, and the person stuck their head in, 
and just said, Pastor, I want, you, I want you to let you know, I get it. And I knew what they meant. I knew what they meant um, from other things. What I knew was the Word of God clicked. They saw it. Why it was right. Know what that will produce? A conviction. A conviction. Growth. Study. Most importantly, study the Scriptures. Again, it doesn't matter how much you pray, all that other stuff. If you're not in the Word of God, this is what ties it all together. By the way, this is, this is one of the reasons why it's dangerous. And I, and, and I, and I know some of my, I'm one of my, Phil Bates, he's one of my friends, but why I'm so against the Saturday night prepare for his messages on Sunday, that pastor that does that. Because when you're having to study for spiritual discernment to get into the Scriptures, it's not something you can do in an hour. It's not. And that will hinder discernment. That will hinder spiritual discernment. Listen, those steps there, you put those in place, you'll be, you, you will begin to grow in your discernment. And you're in a place, you're going to get fed the Word of God. It's going to help you to grow, to have understanding. So when you come into approach it, when you approach your own reading, when you're approaching the preaching of the Word of God, and, 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 and you're seeing it, that is Bible. When you see it, hold fast to it. Don't come in here with presuppositions already determined what you will believe and what you won't believe. Just come in to desire truth. And then what is revealed, hold fast to that which is good. But what you realize, wait, that's in my life and it's evil. It's become sight to you. You realize it now. Get away from it. Get away from it. That's what you do. With heads bowed and eyes closed. First, let me ask this. I don't think we have any visitors tonight, but I don't know what's been going on in your heart. Maybe you've been struggling with this theme of your 